As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The race is on, and one of the overperformers of the first half of the F1 season was Williams. While its tally of 11 points is tiny in comparison to the big teams, it's better than expected and indicative of a team on the rise. So why is it punching above its weight? What does it say about the job Alex Albon is doing, and what should we expect from it for the rest of the season? I'm Ed Shaw, and joining us with all the answers are Ben Anderson and Scott mitchell Malm. Well, Scott, for listeners who can't see you, it's a sombre Scott Mitchell that joins us on the podcast today. Can you just explain why your shirt gives it away? Uh, yeah, as we sit here and record this, I uh, we're recording this just hours after I was left reeling by Sweden's exit from the from the World Cup. And by the time I think that this podcast comes out, it's possible that that, that um, despair has only been compounded by an England elimination. Um, or maybe it has been offset by jubilation at England progressing to the 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 final, so we we will see. Um, someone can someone can check in on me on Twitter by the, when this podcast comes out to see if I've uh, recovered or not. Well, I'm quite disappointed as well because I've been messaging you repeatedly in recent days uh, about the prospect of what I'm calling the Mitchell Malm Derby as a final, which came so close. And of course, England, as we speak, listeners will know that England will have gone through to the final. So I'm keeping <laughs> confident. That's how uh, that's how football tournaments. Well, work. Uh, you're 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 talking as if um, because you're so confident, you're talking as if the, the the derby's not on for the third fourth place playoff. It's possible, but I will admit it being the third fourth place playoff will slightly take the shine off it. It it would be like it would be like trying to get people to care about last year's Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Oh no, Charles Leclerc and Sergio Perez are still fighting over second. Please pay attention. <laughs> it always feels like the third fourth place playoff is almost a punishment for losing in the semi-finals. <laughs> not only do you not make the final, you've got to play this game that no one wants to play. Unless there's a really big Unless, yeah, exactly. Well, unless there's a really big mismatch, and unless there's a big team that's in it versus a real underdog, then the underdog really benefits from winning it. I think I think Sweden were third in the '94 World Cup. 
Thomas Brolin-powered Sweden. Anyway, we're turning into a football podcast, which uh, isn't uh, necessarily a good thing. Ben Anderson, Hello. have you been enjoying the, the Football World Cup or are you, uh, are you occupied with other matters? I've been occupied with other matters. I've been paying attention from afar, reading the news, but I haven't had any time to watch the games. <laughs> too many kids to look after and too much work to do. Too much silverware to polish, as always, you're in front oh, of indeed. your yes. trophy cabinet. How are they looking? And nice and shiny? Shiny enough for you, Ed? They tell the tale of very occasional success over a long period of time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's better than, uh, better than my racing trophy cabinet would look like, which uh, even if I kept hold of my trophies would have uh, not been very large. But there were a few. I did get a few bits of silverware. I'm not surprised that Ben's not been watching the, the Women's World Cup because I can only assume that he's incredibly anti-women's sport, which is why he refuses to recognise that his sister's a better racing driver than he is. Well, this is the old problem, isn't it? Ben's considering his response. <laughs> I think he's trying not to engage. I, I That's what he to, said to me. I had to get one in because I'm pretty sure the last two or three times Ben's been on this podcast with us, I've got one of those jibes in early. We can do that on Partridge and say your silence speaks volumes. <laughs> I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. I've been, I've been boxed into a, are you a misogynist? Uh, or are you going to defend your own racing record corner? There's not really any way out of it that I come out looking good. But yeah, my sister was a fine racing driver as well. She had a much better first season than me in single-seaters and then things switched around. As we were discussing on the last podcast, it's the first season that really counts. That really tells you the, the sheer talent. So uh, by those rules... Well, if, if, if that was the case for Alex Alban, then uh, we would probably wouldn't be recording this episode. What a segue you've given me there. Not only have you deftly avoided our trap, you've given me the perfect jumping off point for moving into the next section. And as your reward, I'm going to fire the first question at you. So we'll start with what is the most conspicuous aspect of the season for Williams, which is Alex Albon's performance. So how convinced are you by what Albon's doing? Yeah, very convinced. Uh, I think all of us were very impressed with the job he did last season for Williams. We had him in our top 10 F1 drivers of 2022, I think pretty much unanimously amongst the panel. He made the final cut anyway. And he's very much continuing in that same vein. I think if we put a top 10 together now, he'd be in contention for it, certainly. Well, if you'd like a, a little live glimpse of it, my rankings that I do after each Grand Prix, I rank the drivers from 1 to 20. On average of that, which is not the methodology we use for the top 10, but it gives you an idea, he's on average the sixth best ranked driver, which I think, certainly from my perspective, tells you what <laughs> I think he's been doing. Yeah, that shows you uh, that he's definitely been impressing Ed Straw consistently this year. And I think, you know, even if he weren't doing like a top 10 ranking of performance, if you look at the, the group of drivers that every team would be considering as nailed on or automatic picks for their team, if you had a blank slate, you know, behind you, Verstappen, Alonso, Hamilton, Norris, I'd probably put Piastri in that group, considering his recent comparisons against Norris in the upgraded McLaren, Leclerc, Sainz, Russell. Albon's right in the group of drivers that, fill the next two slots in that kind of 10 grouping, you know, Ocon, Gasly, Hulkenberg probably, given his qualifying form, having returned with Haas. Sonoda has been good. But yeah, Albon's right in the mix. I think he's been really strong. Williams team leader. Um, it shows shows how things can turn around if you if you give a driver enough time and the right support to get the most out of themselves. My guess would be that, um, just to come back to Ed's average rankings so far, would, would be... Albon's position there as the average is probably gained from having lower variance than others. I can absolutely imagine Albon just being so consistently 
amongst the sort of top eight performers of every Grand Prix weekend. Not necessarily every single one, but whereas other drivers might, you know, have some weekends in the top three or four of Ed's rankings and then have other weekends where they fall out of the top 10 entirely. I can just, like, I just think of Albon's season as a whole and it just strikes me as a very consistently sort of top six, top eight every single weekend. Do you see what I mean? So he has got some of those peaks in there as well, absolutely. But I think he's just been super consistent. That's what has really impressed me. I think he's grown into a driver. We talk about dependable team leaders who teams know that that driver will get in the car and near as damn it will get the most out of it every single time. And I think Albon has in the Williams environment and with that car, which he can lean on, he understands, he's able to get the team to make certain changes. He's able to manipulate the car from in inside with the tools that you've got available to his liking just that little bit more than last year because he's more experienced. It just means that he's either on the front foot going into a weekend or he's reacting very effectively through the weekend. And it doesn't matter whether that car's a Q3 contender or a Q1 elimination. Albon will be getting pretty much the most out of it every weekend. He's looking to me a, a little bit like George Russell did during his stint with that team. You know, you had that consistency of underlying performance that was there almost every weekend. And then the really impressive peaks. You know, remember Canada, Albon was incredible in the mixed conditions, qualifying, then a great defensive drive in the race. He was Q3 in Austria. He beat the Ferraris at Silverstone. It's these giant killing acts, basically, in a car that no one really considers a genuine top 10 car. That's what really stands out. And then on top of that, you listen to Albon and he he seems to have grown into this driver that has a much greater awareness and command of of what he's doing and the surroundings. You know, he's intelligently unpicking the limitations of the car, the weaknesses of the team, working within those, and and also reading some of the comments from the Williams team itself. He's bringing that calm to the team as a leader. You know, when they're in stressful moments, things aren't going their way. He's not getting swept away by that, which we've seen is the case with many drivers. You know, the weekend just gets away with uh, gets away from them as things start to turn against them. But Albon just seems to be able to to pick his way through now, and he's just just rounded off some of those rougher edges that are always apparent, really, when a driver is new into Formula One. I think the only the only major question mark for me at the moment in assessing him is just the teammate comparison. You know, since leaving Red Bull, obviously he was up against Max Verstappen and an almost impossible bar to reach. He's had Nicholas Latifi, who we know wasn't really good enough. And then Logan Sargent's coming this year and think we won't get on to him too much in, in this segment, but not particularly convincing. Certainly Alvin hasn't gone up against a, a top teammate. I'd like to see him tested within that environment a little bit more. Yeah, I think... Even setting the teammate aside, you can see some of the qualities coming through. Okay, you don't get that final little extra test, but even in isolation, that has been very impressive. I think the thing that I really like is he went into Williams last year determined to do things his way. He'd obviously been shattered in terms of confidence in Red Bull by being up against Max Verstappen in the second half of 2020. You watch the onboards, which I did a lot. He just looked like a shadow of the driver he was, but he really went into Williams determined to do it the way he wants it. He try, he's, he's tried to push himself to push the team as well and be quite vocal. You'll hear that on the radio sometimes as well. He's grown in that regard. And he worked on trying to get that uh, that initial turn in balance that he really likes because he likes 
a good positive turn in rear end stability to go with it. And that actually required a bit of a setup change for Williams because Russell's a little bit more concentrating on that through corner balance, whereas he'll deal with pretty much whatever the turn in throws at him. But whereas Albon is the other way around, he wants a specific turn in and then he'll hang on to it in the middle of the corner. And he's just continued to build on that throughout the year. And yeah, as, as Scott alluded to earlier, he's been really consistent. Aside from that mistake in Australia, which unfortunately was a very costly mistake because he was running P6 on merit and he made the error in the wall, horrible error. Other than that, it has been a very strong campaign. Well, I think one element that there was um, a different kind of mistake, and this sort of feeds into him maybe growing into that team leader role still, is I feel like he should have, he and he knew this afterwards, he should have been more vocal in the, I think it was the Austria sprint race, when he wasn't convinced that a pit stop was the way to go. You may remember if you're listening to this, like Nico Hulkenberg, uh, Albon and I think a couple of others had um, switched to to to, to slicks. Um, but a- Albon actually felt at the time that it, that wasn't the right move and that he could have managed it. And he kind of sort of indicated that the Inters felt okay. And he felt that that had been enough, like the team should have understood that what he's saying is I can manage this. But he didn't explicitly state that. It was, it was, it was somewhere in between, and I hope people understand this scale, it wasn't quite Charles Leclerc but it wasn't Carlos Sainz. And I feel like what Albon recognised afterwards was, right, okay, in the future, I need to be really clear. If, if I am convinced that track position is the way to go and I can maintain this, I I need to make that emphatically clear. So I think that's sort of part of that skill set that's still coming. Ed, you you mentioned just now the, you know, being on the radio, being a little bit pushier, being being a bit more vocal. He has definitely lent into that. He was He was constantly being pushed to be bit more like that, bit more George Russell, but maybe not quite as um, uh, divisive, shall we say, in terms of how pushy he is. That was a big factor of of his time at Williams last year. And he's, I think he has grown into that role a little bit. I think he works very well with a James Vowles kind of team boss. I get the impression that Vowles is including Albon in a lot of big picture stuff off track. There's talk of him, you know, being consulted a lot more on um, people that they should bring into the team, the way they should do things, methodologies, types of equipment, that kind of stuff. Like Albon is being treated as a real team leader. And that's how I see him evolving. But inevitably, because it's easy to forget, even though I think Albon's 27 now, he's one of the less experienced drivers on the grid in terms of numbers of Grand Prix and and, and actual time in an F1 car because he came into F1 with no F1 experience before preseason testing. He's had that year out. He's actually relatively low on experience, so he will be improving perhaps at a greater rate than you would expect the average 27-year-old in F1. But the way he's improving is to really, really establish himself as a properly effective team leader. That That's the difference. He's not just improving from a good Grand Prix driver to a very good Grand Prix driver. He's, he's in a rare position of having the opportunity to be a team leader and actually having the ability and the execution to pull it off. And I think he's maturing into that role quite nicely, which might be a surprise to some people. I don't know what the two of you think, but you always get that idea. And uh, I apologize if we may need to bleep this, but the idea that drivers need to be a bit more of a bastard to, you know, to really make it work as a team leader. Does Alex Albon have what it takes to be a team leader? Is he nasty enough? That's kind of a general late slightly lazy question that I felt was asked a bit last year and into this year but what do you two think can you can you lead a team 
being the kind of personality that Albon is, because I think we can all agree he's one of the most affable drivers in F1 currently and certainly one of the most affable I've ever come across. I think he's shown he can in these circumstances, as in without a particularly problematic teammates, I think he's kind of pushed himself to become that sort of force he knew he needed to. I guess where the big question is, is if he's up against a big character alongside him. That's coming back to the point you were making earlier, Ben, about not having a teammate to measure him against. I think performance is almost the lesser part of that. And it's more how he fares when he's got another team who, another driver in the team who might actually be pushing him and competing for that focus and attention. So that that's an interesting thing that probably we do have to see in the future. And given he's out of contract at the end of next year, maybe we'll see the chance for that in 2025 if he gets a move to a bigger team. I would throw that question back slightly and because I've been trying to consider it in the time Ed was talking and ask, well, which drivers amongst the current crop of team leaders really have that bastard streak? People who work with Sebastian Vettel didn't consider him to be a particularly nasty personality, even in competition. He was a nice guy, certainly on the way up through Formula One, and he won four world championships. I think it's possible to be successful and still be a nice guy. Obviously, I've, I've on got the track, it, I've got it, yeah. when, when the chips <laughs> are down, you have, you have to, you have to, you know, be a gladiator and all of that, but you can still conduct yourself away from the car in a certain way that doesn't necessarily have to be on the nasty end or the, the bastard end. Or am I wrong about that? But you could say multi-21 and things like that, I think, showed... In the heat of the moment. Of yeah. Vettel. I, yeah. I, I think he was willing to when he needed to. You, you don't... You know, this whole thing about you don't have to be a treating everybody around you terribly but I think when it really came down to it he had that he had that in his locker to make sure he he focused on his own priorities I think well I think I think that's it isn't it it's where you draw the line and it's there's an element of it on track and there's an element of it off track as well off track you don't need to be a nasty individual but you need to be very driven you need to be very focused you need to be very pushy you need to get your point of view across and make sure on the areas you feel you need to be listened to that you are actually heard you need to make sure you have that voice within the team. And I think Albon achieved that quite early at Williams. That's my gut feeling. And I also think he was very well regarded by Red Bull off track as well, but maybe a little bit too mild-mannered and polite for someone like Helmut Marco, shall we say. But at Williams, I feel he's gone in, it's been well-received, and I think he's built on it. He's layering in a little bit more of that. I, I don't think it necessarily comes naturally to Alex to be shouty, to be selfish, all of that. But I think he's adding a bit more of that to his game as much as is necessary. So it's not a total personality transformation. It's just that little bit. And then there's the question of how nasty can he get on track? Is he capable of bullying other people? I don't think he necessarily is. But I also don't think that is what being a team leader is about. I don't think you need to be that level of forceful on track. You just need to be able to get the job done when it matters. And so far, the the suggestion is Alex can do that. Yeah, so in that case, there are two slightly contrasting aspects to this. The on-track stuff you take in isolation, and that's probably more instinctive and harder to change. You know, there's plenty of drivers whose style of racecraft seems ingrained. Ocon seems on the very aggressive end of a defensive driver, for example, Whatever happens, he doesn't seem to change. Whatever type of team he races for, he always has that aspect to him. Other drivers like Valtteri Bottas, you know, he's had a almost endemic weakness at the start of races since he's been in Formula One. Whichever team he's raced for, he's tended not to come off very well on first laps. 
or in wheel-to-wheel situations at the start of Grand Prix. But off track, in terms of how you work with a team, that's much more conscious. So certainly Albon would have made steps in that regard. And I imagine the key thing there, as Scott alluded to, is his time at Red Bull having that year out. It's probably been the making of him, right? You know, he's been able to just watch today's top driver, Max Verstappen, working with the team, but removed, not as the teammate fresh out of the car in a limited way when you're also trying to compete for yourself, actually almost as a as a fly on the wall, watching how not only he operates, but how everyone else in the team interacts with him and then taking various lessons as a study effectively. And I think that's that's proven quite valuable. I suppose it's the the reverse of what George Russell did at Mercedes. You know, he had a spell entrenched in the Mercedes operation as reserve or third driver or junior, whatever he was called. And he talked endlessly about how he watched Lewis and how he behaved and how he spoke to the team, how he motivated them. And then he tried to take that into Williams and obviously had to modify certain things he did and the ways he spoke as he learned on the job because Williams is not the same as Mercedes. And I imagine Alex has done a similar kind of learning, obviously getting thrown in at the deep end with Red Bull after Toro Rosso, then being chucked out but remaining within the fold. And he's, rather than sulked, he's used that time really productively, uh, added that aspect to his game and then taken that to Williams and flourished. Yeah, and that's hugely valuable for Williams. One of the main reasons they're at the front of that mini group of four at the back that's battling for seventh is because Albon is a strong all-round team leader. He's the best driver on this year's performance levels in that group, which is massively, massively valuable, especially when you're needing that really, really good, well-executed weekend even to come away with a few points. So yeah, absolutely essential to them. And they'll be hoping they can keep him in the long term, but it could get quite difficult. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Scott, let's move on to Williams as a team now. It's on this pathway to get back to winning ways. That's the hope anyway. It's clearly going to be quite a long process. The 2026 rule changes even will be too early for that. The timescale is much longer. But team principal James Vales has been pushing hard for capital expenditure changes that make pretty clear how far it has to go because there's the need for that investment the cost cap won't let them do. So what are the weaknesses of this team and what is the trajectory it's on? Well, there's the obvious... um... There's the obvious short to medium term stuff like they got rid of their technical director at the end of last year and also I think was it the the head of aero that they lost as well. Now they've obviously they're obviously bringing in uh, Pat Fry as the chief technical officer which gives them some fantastic medium to long term direction and it takes a bit of that immediate technical firefighting off of James Val's hands but they still don't have that 
that technical director, that sort of more immediate pro- technical project management and oversight. Um, I think they're still working on bringing in a technical director to work under Fry. So even though they've done a solid job with this year's car, clearly, and I feel like it's very well understood and trackside, they seem to be getting the most out of it. <clears throat> they are just lacking a little bit in terms of, how shall I put this? A little bit of technical impetus in terms of being on the front foot, being creative, being a bit more aggressive, being able to build on a season in which they do quite well. Because if you look at how they started the 2022 rules, for example, they'd had that kind of linear trajectory, 2019, 2021, through the end of the last set of stable rules, where they're catching up and you're not having to manage multiple projects or whatever. But then that point of managing that new project and having to interpret a new set of rules, be aggressive with it, really, really understand them and how to uh, maximize them, Williams came unstuck and took a big backward step in, in, in 2022. Now they've started to rectify that again this year. But without that strong sort of short to medium term leadership, I, I struggled to see where that proper short term step will come from. Will they just keep doing small iterations of relatively simple ideas or will they become an innovative team that is able to you know, leap up the order properly? That, that to me is one of the obvious weaknesses, but then there's a much longer term weakness which is linked to that, which is the capital expenditure stuff that you're talking about. The reason they want extra CapEx allowance is to be able to either massively improve or get for the first time key pieces of infrastructure within their facilities to actually be a modern F1 team, design an F1 car the proper way, upgrade an F1 car the proper way. There are parts of Williams, it would be wrong to suggest that the entire team is 20 years in the past or however they, James Vowles wants to phrase it. There are things within Williams that are at a very good standard, clearly, but not everything. And some stuff that is just basic that they're missing, like you know systems that automatically log the number of parts that are in uh, in stock and, and where they are. The process of developing a front wing, for example, is very, very manual and granular instead of being a bit more automated and a bit more um, sophisticated to to allow for more efficient and expansive development. So th- those are all quite fundamental limitations to me. And it, unless they're resolved, short, medium and long term, I think it puts a ceiling on what's realistic for Williams to achieve. Yeah. And I think the important thing to remember as well is that it has to be very long term because it's not just a question of come up with a few clever ideas and you catch up. This is a team that has been falling behind, particularly in terms of the aero side, but in a lot of other areas, pretty much for a quarter of a century, let's face it. You've got to go back to their last championship. And obviously the BMW years were better, but they had a very strong engine, not always a great car. Even Patrick Head at the time would admit that. So there's just been this this lack of evolving the underlying science. It's a clearly very, very good team. There's very clever people in it. They know and understand an awful lot because you're not talking about a huge gap from front to back, but you get diminishing returns in terms of how easy it is to make those gains. And that's when that really detailed understanding comes in. And that's what they've got to do as well as getting all the other processes in place. They've then got to use their processes and facilities to build up that understanding to get anywhere near what a Red Bull can do, let alone teams further behind that. So it's a huge long-term thing. And I suppose the funny thing, Ben, is you'll have experienced this. I've been covering Formula One for quite a long time, and I've been through lots and lots of different full storms for Williams. 
I've written things about their latest master plan for how they're going to get back to the front. But obviously, it's never really happened. They've had moments where things have gone well. The start of the V6 Turbo Hybrid era, obviously third in the Constructors' Championship, back-to-back seasons in 14 and 15. Although that was largely power unit base because they had the right power unit they had a decent enough car but then they they couldn't spend they couldn't invest to build on that and they just fell backwards so is this different do you sense under Doralton and James Vowles it's a different thing or is it just going to be bouncing around being a little bit Tyrrell and oh we were really good 20 years ago therefore we will be again I think it's a little bit difficult to say given we're still so early into that era I, I feel like the the worst times are behind Williams, there seems to be that modicum of stability now with the ownership, with the commitment to James Vowles as team principal, with the fact Pat Fry is coming on board. That's a big vote of confidence in the project, I think. You know, Pat Fry is a hugely respected uh, engineer and technical figure. So that will encourage not only people who are at Williams already, but perhaps people who are wavering on whether that's the right opportunity for them or whether it's a team worth getting behind and joining. They, I think, squandered some of the potential for progress that you alluded to at the start of the V6 hybrid era. You know, under Pat Simmons, it was relatively stable. Um, and then the Paddy Lowe period, you know, the the change of ownership from the family to DeRilt, and it was a just a, a it felt like a lost 10 years, really, uh, near enough. Not quite ten. It's more like seven, isn't it? But now they they seem to be they seem to have a much better basis on which to to build. But we're only you know six months or so into the James Vowles era. He's talked about needing three years in his experience to change the culture of a team. Culture is something that we've been banging on about as regards Williams for near enough a quarter of a century. You know, processes stuck in the past and thinking stuck in the past. They must be changing, and as Scott said, there must be elements that work really well because you know they are still beating three other teams in the constructors' championship at present. Uh, they are upgrading their car to a standard that impressed McLaren at the Canadian Grand Prix, which I think was the last major update on the Williams. So there's there are things there that they do well. I think they just need a proper period of stable and effective leadership to get behind rather than this chopping and changing that we've had over particularly the last four or five years. To distill it down, it's a question of what's changed, hasn't it? The ownership has changed. The ownership has money. Also, Formula One's rules have changed. You've got the cost cap. You've got a more equitable Concord agreement than the one that was signed that governed the, that pretty much that seven-year period that you were talking about. And so there is now at least a payback for that investment and the hope that the performance potential over time can be raised. Whereas 10 years ago, the big teams were just pulling further and further away. I think that's probably the, the the way the landscape's changed to make this a bit more realistic. Whether they do it or not, who knows? I think that Pat Fry appointment is... I think we've we've probably talked about this uh, previously, but it, it ties into that long-term Williams vision so well because he's good at, from, from what I'm told, he's very good at two things. One, I think he's an excellent, excellent troubleshooter. I think he's really good at coming in and seeing where problems are and un- and un- because he understands the kind of systems and processes that you need. He can see where that doesn't exist and doesn't work. So if you want someone to unpick a culture, which is exactly what Vowles is trying to do at Williams, I can't think of many better than Fry. But then 
flip side of that is because of the roles that he's held, he's also got a huge amount of experience at that longer term planning. As CTO, he won't be fighting those technical fires on a daily basis, but planning for 2026, planning for the 2030s as well. And when you're trying to do what Vows is doing, which is uh, bring the basement level of the team up, improve the facilities, work out what it needs, it's hard to think of. I I don't think they could have got someone better for the CTO role. And now I'm fascinated to see who they can bring in to bolster their technical ranks. They're obviously, they've completed the um, Patrick um, set in F1 now, haven't they? From uh, Head, Simmons, Lowe and Fry. Is there anyone else? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of uh, of looking at it. But yeah, what you say there is absolutely right. He's a very good communicator. A lot of people talk about that. He's very collaborative. He works well with people. He's very good at looking in the longer term. And that's really important for Williams because he's able to take some of that job off vowels and look at the bigger picture. He'll be thinking about the 26 car, et cetera, et cetera. He's not some design genius who will come in and design you a magic car. You don't really get technical directors who can do that anyway. But there are sometimes different skill sets among what you might call the technical director classes in Formula One. Some of them are better at looking at that big long-term picture and putting everything in place. Some of them are a little bit more effective when focused on that year's car, for example, or the the more short-term. So they need to bring in a few more people probably below him as well, although there are some very good people there already. Head of Aero, they still need to recruit as well. So I'm very interested to see who they come up with there. But that's that's the big question. And, and, And I guess, Ben, they are in that tricky situation because it's going to take a long time. They need to not fall into the Alpine trap of constantly making up timelines and plans that just become a millstone for them. They've got to create stability to make that possible. So I guess the main problem for them is how to work out what they should be achieving at any given time. It's quite easy to say this year, well, seventh is overachieving. If they hold on to that, they will have overachieved. Really good effort. But then it's, well, actually if the main objective is, I don't know, 2030 or whenever the next rule changes after the 2026 one, is that just too broad a horizon to be worried about? Where do they need to be in the interim? It's very easy just to let yourself be rubbish for ages thinking, oh, it'll be better tomorrow. And then tomorrow never comes, as uh, Alpine has learned. Yeah, exactly. Well, they need they need to make sure that they can run sustainably for a long period whilst chasing that kind of vague goal of being better I think the performance of McLaren will give encouragement to a team like Williams that an independent true independent can still compete at or near the front obviously they're not going for the championship but the last few races they've been right right up there best of the rest um, the, the jump from where Williams is to even where the chaotic Alpine team is is quite big and obviously that team benefits even though it seems a bit shambolic at the moment from vast previous investment in resources and people. I mean, they may and look like they are struggling to hang on to people now. So there may be some good people that Williams can pick up from Enstone as that thing seems to be imploding a little bit now. But they've also got to watch out for the teams around them making steps. It's hard to see how Haas makes a really big leap given the way it's structured. But Alpha Tauri feels like a team that's underperforming this year compared to the end of the last rules cycle. So it feels like they've got a, a big step that they could make relatively easily based on what we know about how that team usually performs. And obviously Sauber is getting ready to become the Audi Works team when the next rules cycle comes into play. So you would anticipate that under Andreas 
Seidel and James Key with that investment behind them and probably a big name driver signed up as well to lead that project, that they would make a big step. Whether it's immediate or not, I don't know. But all of that means that it's very easy for Williams, having, as you say, overachieved this year to be seventh. They could suddenly slip back to ninth or tenth quite easily and have to stay at that level for quite a few years while this process under Bowes and Pat Fry takes effect it's going to be a long time recruiting the right people, getting the right structure. They may even be, as McLaren have found, a few missteps you have to make and an extra restructures you have to go through before you start hitting the right notes and consistently developing a car that you, you feel like can get the job done and really bring you the results you want. And of course, in the meantime, they're going to need the patience and continued investment of the owners and the partners that they're able to get on board. And that is something you, you can't guarantee but running the team sensibly, creating a, a strong culture and a consistent uh, approach will will help bolster that. You know, Williams has just felt like a massive confusion in that period between early V6 hybrid era and now. And if they can just eliminate that, that would be a, a great starting point. Yeah, and I suppose the one curveball to progress is whether there's any sale of the team. You should say there's no suggestion there will be, but it was recently valued at over 700 million by Forbes so they've got an asset that's worth something Doralton does make a big play of the fact that it's a long-term investor so if it's good to its word it may well do that but you never know someone might come along with a massively over the odds bid because they really want a team and Williams is a decent foundation so that that's probably the thing that could disrupt this trajectory but that's a complete unknown it could be a good thing you know if if a manufacturer comes along that can offer real value and um allow it to take a, a next step technically, then that's a good thing that Darrell might want to sell up and, and move on. What you don't want is a sort of fire sale to someone just for the, the headline number and then they turn out to be you know uncommitted, uh, a bad omen for the team. That's, that's the thing you really want to avoid. They seem like a team that, that now could be interesting. Obviously, the They've missed this kind of manufacturer boom for obvious reasons because there was just too much instability and and probably too much work needed. And obviously under the prior family ownership, there was a resistance to sell up. You know, So Williams is paying partly for that obstinance, if you like, that dates back many decades. But maybe in the future, you know, once Bowser's had time to to rebuild the team and and strengthen it, then you know, that opportunity could present itself and it could be the the thing that powers Williams on to the next level. And to wrap up this section, Scott, what do you think people should expect from Williams in the second half of the year? More of the same, or do you think it's going to be a bit of a battle to hang on to that position in the Constructors' Championship? Uh, I think that will depend entirely on what Williams' immediate rivals do. So Haas and Alpha Tauri in particular, Alpha Romeo as well, because they've got some decent peaks in them, as we saw in um, uh, qualifying for Hungary. Uh, because Williams is not prioritising this season. And I know it's very easy for a lot of teams that have got to make progress to say, oh, we don't care about this year, we're focusing on next. But the Williams rhetoric has been consistent since Bahrain, since Valves' first engagements. Since Valves' first engagements as team boss, he has talked about whatever is achievable this year and whatever might be within their grasp, they cannot let it cloud the fact that they need to prioritise the longer term. So I don't think that Williams is going to have any improvements to it before the end of the season. There might be some minor updates that have already you know, been in the pipeline for a while and they're just sort of going through the process before they get onto the car. 
and they might have something a little bit more special for Monza, for example, because everyone will go there with the lowest downforce spec possible. So it will be about grabbing the opportunities that do exist within the uh, potential of that package. Monza is the obvious example for one big hurrah. Alex Albon missed out on that last year. Um, his appendix let him down and got Nick DeVries an F1 drive, short term, then long term, but then not so long term <laughs> after he was dropped earlier this year. Um, so Albon's due a, a good crack at Monza after he missed out last year in a car that obviously he would definitely have scored points in. But Spa was a little bit of a warning that just because they've got a car that has some theoretically great tracks to hit doesn't mean that that's going to come easy. It's a slight misstep and you're outside of the points and that's what they were in Belgium. So I think there will be one or two opportunities certainly to, to score some points and to score decent points. But I would be surprised if they are not more consistently sort of the ninth or 10th team rather than in that sort of 6th to 8th bracket just purely because I don't see that car being improved in the way that others probably will. I just expect there be to be more upgrades on on rival cars as Williams sort of turns its, has turned its attention to next year. Yeah, and it's worth remembering that Albon's mega result in Canada has made the difference. That one race is the difference between them being seventh and ninth, I think, in the points. And and within reach of Alpha Tauri, if Alpha Tauri continue their recent trajectory and Sonoda picks off one point here, one point there, you know, they could easily be at the bottom, but for that one performance. So I think some of that somewhere like Monza, they will definitely be looking to score big because in theory that suits the, the car the best. They were quite quick in Austin last year, weren't they? So maybe there's a, a chance there. There's always a chance if there's a chaotic race with um lots of attrition. Um, but it's very easy for them for them to go from overachieving in seventh to being around where you expected at the start of the season, ninth or tenth. Yeah, that's going to put quite a bit of pressure on the back end of the season, but it's a good race team as well, trackside. They're good at execution. Obviously, we know how good Albon is. We've talked about that at length, maybe even. Their other driver might get in on the points act at some stage. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Right, Ben, let's talk about the other driver, Logan Sargent. In the wider context, we're not expecting a particularly dramatic, silly season. Most of the attention is that group at the back. Williams is one team that there might be a question mark over because Albon signed up for next year, but Logan Sargent's future isn't clear. Williams obviously will have the option to keep him on, but do you think he's done enough? I I don't think so. I think if you were, if you were just judging it on performance, I think we got a bit of a 
a full storm. You know, he was very impressive in Bahrain, quite impressive in Jeddah. Williams were talking him up, saying, I remember James Fowles saying, oh, he's doing really well considering he doesn't know many of these circuits because obviously the start of the season was quite weird and very street track heavy. There was supposedly this driving style breakthrough in Monaco. Then we're on to the, the more traditional run of races where he has previous experience from F2 mostly. And I just feel like he hasn't really kicked on. And I don't know if that's the car moving away from him slightly, Albon just getting more in tune and in tune with it and therefore stretching away from him. But I, ha- I haven't felt like he's been a huge upgrade on Latifi. I think a small one, but I don't think he's a difference maker in that second seat at the moment. And there are a few drivers on the market that I th- would think could, if Williams could get them and it wasn't too costly, could potentially offer a bit more in that second seat. Someone like Sonoda, for example, I think he's progressed really well this year with a bit more experience. Someone who could, on pace, as well as racecraft, maybe test Alex Albon a little bit more. But in saying that, I think Sargent's position, I mean, Williams obviously insists that he's, you know, he's not like the TV was there because he's bringing budget to the team. He's not a pay driver, Logan Sargent. But they do have a decent proportion of American partners now. I think about 40% of their commercial partners are American or American headquartered. So that's got to be a consideration. But I think on pure performance, I know he's a rookie, but a little bit disappointing, I would say. I think it's difficult to speak definitively before the second half of a season. But what happens between now and the end of the year, it's not just, oh, it will determine whether he's had a good or an indifferent rookie season. I think it will decide his future. I would say it's as, I don't think it's so precarious that he's got, you know, two races after the summer break to save it or anything like that. If, if, if that is the case, it's just plain stupid because you can't bring a driver who was in his first year of F2 and did a solid job, but, you know, wasn't stunning in F2. And he's been fast-tracked to F1 out of, purely out of circumstance, because they missed out on two drivers, at least two drivers that they wanted ahead of him in Oscar Piastri and and De Vries, and dump that driver into F1 and then only give him that one season. And unless there is an emphatic, overwhelming start-to-finish set of evidence that he's not going to get good enough to to do a job for you in F1. It seems ludicrous to me to put him in that scenario and then drop him after one year. Just It would just be daft. But that's why I say that the, the time between now and the end of the year is so important because what he hasn't been is imp- impressive enough for it to be a no-brainer to keep him on. So you do need to assess it because there could be evidence between now and the end of the year that actually those flashes of promise, the moments where... The pace does seem to be there, but he just doesn't quite hook it up. If those are, if those continue and they're built upon and they turn into, you know, a points finish or even just you know good Sunday drives that end up in a near miss because that's all the car can 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 produce. That's what Sergeant needs, and that is what a good rookie should be able to do. What is a what is a concern is if he just continues to be wasteful with his chances. If he continues to have more weekends where he's several tenths off the pace for Albon, where he doesn't look anywhere near where that car can be on Saturdays or Sundays, that will be what kills his career. And he won't get a second season if he is at that extreme of the scale. But I, 
I still think if I look at who is probably realistically on the cards for Williams, I don't see anyone that jumps out as absolutely guaranteed, nailed on, you should be getting this person in. I mean, if you can get someone like Sonoda, that would be, I think, a great driver to have alongside Albon, but I don't see him as being available to them. So I think he should get a bit more time, but he also does need to do a bit more in the second half this year to push me over the edge into emphatically believing he deserves a second season. Yeah, I think he's his circumstances are slightly more favourable because of the lack of pressure from outside the current crop. You know, there's Mick Schumacher on the sidelines at Mercedes. Maybe he's a contender. Maybe he's done a similar thing to Albon, used his year out in a way that helps him come back stronger. He was touted as one of the outside candidates, wasn't he? Um, before they, before Williams did what they they ultimately did and took Sargent. Is there anyone really coming up from F2 that makes a convincing case? I mean, maybe they do a one of their early hybrid era type deals with Mercedes and Frederick Vesti comes in as a promising rookie for Williams to develop and they they take they do some kind of commercial deal with Mercedes around that, but that's tenuous maybe. So Sergeant's got to watch out for that. And of the other options, yes, that Sonoda's maybe not realistic. He's probably the best of the prospects who we know are on the market at the end of this year even if Williams wouldn't be his priority maybe drivers like Hulkenberg you wouldn't necessarily discount a bit of a homecoming for him at Williams might be nice again somebody you know is quick who could push out when it depends really on what Williams wants to do you know we were talking earlier about how much and Scott particularly you were talking about how much Williams is trying to include Albon in the bigger picture you know, make him feel really feel the responsibility of being the the guy there building certainly the the short to medium term of this project around. Do you want to throw a driver into the mix that potentially upsets that equilibrium just to try and extract a bit more from him or test him? Maybe not at this stage. Maybe where Williams is at, they're better off working on Albon, continuing to grow with him and not worrying too much about the second car, so long as somebody's in there who's doing a decent enough job. That still doesn't mean that Logan Sargent is doing a good enough job, but he's probably under a bit less pressure than the, he might be if Williams was a bit further along its journey. I, I think the, the, the problem there is that when you've got only really rookie or second-tier driver options, you know, like Mick Schumacher is... Mick Schumacher is what Logan Sargent can probably be. Maybe Sargent could be a bit better because I think he might be a bit quicker than Schumacher. Schumacher's okay. He's not a great qualifier, but if he has, as he showed at Haas, if he's got a good car underneath him and he does the job on Saturday, he'll score you points every now and again. That's what he'll do. Is that really what a team like Williams needs? Probably in the second car, it's okay. But again, like that's probably that's within Sargent's trajectory. So I just don't see why you'd bin him off unless you were absolutely convinced he's not going to get there. And I don't certainly don't see why you'd bin him off for a rookie because why would you start this process again at the start of next year when, unless again, unless you saw someone that you thought, okay, well, the upside there is clearly higher. But then this is just the exact argument that Williams was making a year ago. I, I, I quite like the Hulkenberg shout. I quite like that kind of driver. And one of the reasons to do it would just be to ensure yourself in case you lose Albon. Because I think it's possible. You know, he's under contract to, I think, for twenty three uh, for this season and next season. 
But as anyone who saw Ed's video on our YouTube channel will know, you know, Albon's a key player for the 25 driving market. He'd be a fantastic backup option for someone like McLaren. He'd be a really interesting second driver to put in at Ferrari or to replace Lewis Hamilton at Mercedes. You know, maybe a return to Red Bull because I know, having spoken to Alex about this, that he's not scared about going back up against Max Verstappen. With this level of form and this currency that he has at the moment as a driver, Albon is someone who is above Williams in terms of their respective uh, places in the driver and team pecking orders. So there's a chance that they lose Albon, maybe not next year, but maybe for 25. And if that's the case, are, are you comfortable with a second-year sergeant and then feeding off whoever's available in the driver market? Or do you want to try and bring someone in for next year who might be that kind of medium-term option if Al Albon leads? I think that is something that might have to be considered. And that's where the perennial tension between the short-term need and the long-term focus butt heads. It's all very well for James Vowles to say, yes, we can't get distracted about what's happening now. We need to think about this long-term. And Albon is obviously central to that in terms of their thinking. But they have to, they have to plan for the possibility that he has his head turned by a better opportunity in the short term. As we said earlier, Albon is relatively inexperienced for his age. But actually, he's, what, 29 now? He's one of the older-ish drivers he's not going to wait forever for Williams to become a true force he needs to do what's best for his relatively short career and to your point Scott Logan Sargent doesn't look like the kind of driver at the moment that Williams could build the next phase of its regrowth around they're going to need somebody quicker more consistent more experienced they're going to need a, an Alex Albon clone and that's where I think someone like a Hulkenberg or a Sonoda, if you can if you can become available, is a better bet in the short term at least, just ensuring yourself against the distinct possibility that many, many bigger teams come in for your driver next summer looking to fill basically their second car for, for 2025. I think there's another dimension that's worth considering when it comes to Logan Sargent. I'd certainly endorse what Scott said earlier about Sargent's had flashes he's been very frustrating actually sergeant because you think actually he's making progress and austria actually was a good upturn i think the last four race weekends before the break there were some more positive signs but as he as sergeant said himself he really needs to get it together because he hasn't strung together a complete grand prix weekend in 12 yet and that's what he needs to do but there's a wider picture here because what do we know about james Vowles? well we know he's been involved with the young driver program at mercedes for a long time so he's got an interest in young drivers which means that he wants to give Sargent time, and I think he's sincere in that. But Williams is also a team that's building up its driver academy. It's a small fish, really, in the F1 driver academy pond. So if you're James Vowles, I think you'll be sitting there thinking, well, what can we offer someone? Because getting the next big thing would be hugely valuable. You can put a driver in a car for a couple of years, then you can sell them on to a big team, maybe. And that can pay for your wind tunnel, as Sauber did with Kimi Raikkonen. It can pocket you four million, as it did for Tyrrell with John Lacey all those years ago. So. I would be very keen if I was James Vowles for Williams to show, actually, do you know what? When we sign drivers, we give them a chance. We're the anti-Red Bull. Okay, we don't have a Red Bull Formula One car for you, but we're going to really get behind you and give you the chance to show. And if their first proper graduate jumps into the car and then gets axed after a season, even if it's a merited decision, that will have an impact on that. I'm not saying this is the be-all and end-all, but I think this is another thing that means Williams will be very keen for Sargent to work and I wouldn't be surprised if Sargent can put together a couple of good weekends that might be the point actually where they say right we're going to commit to you for next year 
give you an uptick of confidence, let you spend the rest of the season without the pressure, see how you perform. I, I don't know. That's just me sort of thinking how it might work. But if I was Williams, I'd really want to make that driver academy work well. And I think the best way they can do it is by showing that they're a place you would want to be over and above some of the more capricious but bigger ones. So maybe that's a dimension as well. But the easiest thing for Logan Sargent is just to get in the car from Zanvo onwards and just show he's got pace. Because I think at his best, he's shown flashes of pace to get sort of close to Albon. I don't think he's going to be jumping in and blowing Albon away or anything. But it's in there to come together, and that's what he'll be hoping to achieve. But that's just going to be one of the driver market questions. There's a few other things have to happen with Alfa Romeo, obviously Joe's seat. It isn't certain. He hasn't got a contract for next year. Haas needs to confirm its driver line. I'm sure they'll keep Hulkenberg if they can. I think they've got an option on him anyway. Magnussen's in an interesting situation, struggling, but they might well want to back him. But there's potential for change there. And what's going to happen with AlphaTauri as well, which is in its own little Red Bull ecosystem. So that's going to be an interesting little subplot in the second half of the year. Well, thanks very much to Ben and Scott for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there, even in the depths of the August break. Check out our other podcasts, including our IndyCar podcast, MotoGP, Bring Back V10s and the Race F1 Tech Show. And also have a look at our video channel on YouTube. Well, we're gradually working our way to the return of the Grand Prix season, so stay with us for everything you need to know for the world of Formula One. (laughs) 